Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman, and this week's episode is about persuasion. I've never seen myself as a very persuasive guy, but I'm a CEO now, so I have to think about ways to influence people. So I asked Jason Harris, the CEO of Mechanism, to CEO me, and he happily obliged. Jason's company has been named Small Agency of the Year by AdAge, and also one of the best places to work. It has famously linked up with the White House under President Obama to create the It's On Us campaign to raise awareness of sexual assault on college campuses. And Jason's got a book out called The Soulful Art of Persuasion that a Harvard business professor called The Modern Version of Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Jason made me think a great deal about persuasion. After the conversation you're about to hear, I went off to the glaciers of Alaska and at 4.30 in the morning saw a pulsing beam of energy coming down from the heavens that has been called the Northern Lights, made me feel so small. And its pure majesty made me feel angry too at the way we're polluting our planet. The sheer sight of this energy persuaded me to focus my energy on doing what I can, whatever I can, to help clean up the planet. Now, not long after I got back from that trip to Alaska, I gave a talk at Valley View Hospital in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. This hospital has a showcase full of awards, but what really struck me was a long line of portraits down a corridor, portraits of cancer survivors by the photographer Susan Drinker with a quote that each survivor chose to link to the image. One quote under a smiling survivor read, Everything will be all right in the end. So if it's not all right, it's not the end. This one corridor and the facial expressions and body language of the people I met in this corridor persuaded me that if you entered Valley View, you'd come out stronger. Then there's this image that keeps coming back to me from the podcast I did a couple of weeks ago with Mark Roberge, the lead singer of the rock group OAR. For years, the group's motto was always on tour. And Mark described how after a show, everyone immediately got into sweats and comfy tees to head to the next gig. And that's why the band is among the biggest fans of Sportique Threads, because Sportique allows the group to roam in comfort. If I'd never heard of Sportique, the image of those band members traveling in comfort would have persuaded me to go to sportique.com, that's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com, and check out those hoodies, sweatpants, and comfy tees. Now, the Northern Lights and Valley View Hospital and Mark Roberge didn't convince me of anything with an argument or statistics. They all persuaded me to see the world their way simply by being themselves. And I think this is the essential message of Jason Harris's book, that persuasion is not about debates. It's about character. And this guy is quite a character, an American original. So let's get straight to Jason Harris. Beautiful. I'm so happy to be here. I have a great feeling. And you got a book in front of you. That's right. Soulful Art of Persuasion. The 11 Habits That Will Make Anyone 
a master influencer. That's correct, Cal. You can make me a master influencer? If you follow the habits in the book, I can't make you do anything, <laughs> but you can help yourself to become a master influencer. Oh, I, you know, I always rely on stories to persuade. Yep. Is, is that a centerpiece of the book? It is, yeah. The persuasive power of storytelling is, is a whole chapter. And the, the need to tell stories is critical. And as humans, we're the universe's only storytellers. You know, that's how we pass on information through time is storytelling. I mean, you, that's what you do for a living. Right. And, and advertisers, I'm a, we run an advertising agency. We're always trying to tell stories for brands to elicit an outcome, you know, to persuade people to buy something, to use a service. That's, it's all done through the power of storytelling. Did you grow up telling stories? In a storytelling home? No, not at all. My, I grew up in, uh, my parents were both teachers, so they were both academics. What did they teach? My mom teached English as a second language. My dad teached uh, sociology. And so they were always reading books. I was trying to always learn through experiences, and they were learning through being at home reading. Like that was their way to learn the world. Oh, and I always man. was like, I, I didn't want to learn that way. I wanted to learn by experiences and travel. You're and, my kind of guy. Yeah, interaction and speaking with people. And right. they, they, they didn't do that. Very so, bookish. Very bookish. So, what, so what were your Even today, I, I tried to take them on a, well, I took them to Spain. And uh, it took me like five months to convince them to take that trip to experience a different culture. They're like, oh, we know about Spain. You know, we read a lot. We of read about it. Yeah, we read about it. I'm like, it's not the same. Death in the afternoon. It's not Hemingway. The yeah, Hemingway. The I know what bullfights are like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I had to drag them there. But I learned the power of storytelling through uh, Kiss, the band Kiss. That's how I learned about it. Yeah. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> uh, well, I was kind of um, an awkward kid. I, I wasn't sure, like, what my passions were or what I was into. And... Um, when I discovered Kiss, I joined the Kiss Army, and I don't know you. Do you, you know Kiss? Like, are you? Yeah, I know. I know. You know band. who they yeah. are, but like their music's not amazing. You know, it, it was. It wasn't. It really about the persona, the the, yeah. the the way they made themselves up. Yep. So before they created the face paint, right? They were playing for like twenty people in dive bars because it's the same music. Then when they created these characters, the Catman, the Spaceman. The Lover, and, and they created a mythology and they wrote st background stories. And you never saw them without those, when they played. So they it was always, like they created a comic book. They created a live comic book that turned into performance art. And that's the story. They manifested a story. They created a story. You know, it wasn't a truthful one, but it was a, a, a fictional one that they created. And then they took off. And the Kiss Army was millions and millions of people that bought into that story. And I did too. And I felt like I was in a community, like the Kiss Army. What was the moment that you felt compelled to follow along? Um, I remember, um, I don't know how old I was, maybe 12 or something. Join the Kiss Army at 12. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was, a, a, younger I was a young guy, man. man. Yeah, I know. I was so into it. <laughs> uh, they had like these, these albums where each member put out their own album. And they had like the face paint. And I bought all four of them and listened to them. And uh, I mean, I listen to them now, and they're like pretty garbage. Like they're not amazing. But it was it wasn't the music. It was something bigger. It was than like that. I got into the the demon one, you know, Gene Simmons, the demon one, and like all his songs were like dark, and I sort of like fell into that story. I don't know. I was just into it. I bought all their albums. I'd read all the liner notes. And I'd get all the gear. I had like Kiss Army patches, and the Kiss Army would call radio stations and beg radio stations to play Kiss songs. It's almost like the world's first uh, influencer marketing. Oh man, that persuade, yeah. the art of persuasion. Yeah, the art of persuasion was Kiss. <laughs> That's how I first got into it. And uh, they persuaded me, I was in the Kiss Army. I was buying like Kiss comic books, Kiss action figures. I loved it. You enlisted. I would go around my, my parents' house with like the grease paint on, my tongue wagging out. <laughs> My parents, my parents had, <laughs> my parents had their books, and they were like, "Oh my God, our kid's an idiot," you know. Well, let me tell you <laughs> something. Walking into these offices here, yeah, 
there'd be some big disagreement because right. you turned out okay, right, yeah. brother. Oh, now they're happy, you know? Now oh. you got offices all over the world. Yeah, yeah. Now he's like, oh, he didn't end up on drugs, you know? <laughs> <laughs> he's all right. No more tongue wagging. He's yeah, just... you know, like, it's easy when you're, when you're, if I turn the other way, they'd be like, oh, it's not our fault. <laughs> but now they're like, oh, we, we made him into what he is. We're so <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Oh, so what, what's the next step you get? You enlist in the KISS Army. Yeah, yeah. You, you're beginning to understand, well, they persuaded me this way. Yeah. So are you understanding how they did it or were you just going along with it at first? Well, you know, I was pretty young, so I was just, I was just going along with it and trying to get as much merchandise as, as I could. And, you know, I would just fell. So when they came out with a new album, I'd, get it f at first and listen to every song and memorize it and read all the words. Where were you at the time? Where, do, where, where was I living? Yeah. Um, in Fairfax, Virginia, outside of DC. Now, was this a popular? Uh, were other people in the kiss? Yeah. No, no, no. You were, the, no, only, you were the only one. I wasn't the only one, but it wasn't pervasive. There weren't a lot of Kiss Army's uh, fans in my school. You know, they were more into like, what, Wham? Oh, I remember the Culture when. Club yeah, and Michael yeah. Jackson and, you know, all that, that type of music. Okay. Yeah. And so that made you stand out even more in a way because you had that persona. I, yeah, I mean, I had the patches and the jeans jacket and I was, yeah, I was, I, I grew, you know, then I grew out of Love and Kiss, but I still, my first, I took my two boys and their first concert was a Kiss concert. How did they react? I mean, they loved it for like the first half hour and they were like, ah, it's too loud, I want to. Let's go. <laughs> but I made them put on face paint. And, uh, you know, they, there's pyrotechnics and they come out with like 12 inch heels on. And, you know, they, they loved it for a little bit. And then they're like, you know, we're tired. We got school tomorrow. Man. Okay. Dad. <laughs> yeah, dad, that's enough. Uh, yeah, so, where, how? Did I know I was getting you, persuaded? How does yeah. this move you forward yeah. to, I mean, this is an amazing office. It's just creativity all over the place and and the glass transparency and you got the California Republic flag yeah, there yeah, yeah and his conference table is like you know the last time I've seen a table a wooden table this long <laughs> it was in Portugal where they have these port houses so like the English went over there hundreds of years ago they had all this money and they would set up these tables to have feasts for like 80 people. Amazing. And everybody like Game would of get- Like Thrones style. Yeah, you yeah. get served your dinner on one of these tables. And then after dinner, you'd go to another room where they had another table amazing. this long just for your port. That's amazing. And that's what I feel like. Wait, they still have table. those tables set up? Yeah, yeah, they do. They do. Amazing. But did you eat at them or? Uh, yes, kinda, I did. Oh. I did. Oh, that's amazing. And cool it, so it was, yeah, it was like going back hundreds of years. And now you're reminding me because the beautiful old wooden table here feels so at home. It would be a great place to work. Yeah. Now, how do you get from wagging your tongue at a KISS concert, yeah. 12 years old, face painted, to this beautiful table? <laughs> uh, well, how long do you have? We, we got time, uh, right. brother, because I am yeah, very cool. curious. All right. Uh, well, I think this is all happening subconsciously, not, you know, the power of storytelling. You're not always conscious of it, right? Until you start studying it, which I've been in advertising 20 years. So then I, I wrote a book, which storytelling is a, is a theme throughout the book when you reflect on it. But at the time, I sort of went from there into I watched a lot of TV I was like a TV junkie. I wasn't really into reading like my parents were. Would you be fascinated by the commercials? Yeah, so that's what drew me into the world of advertising ultimately is, is growing up as a kid, I'd watch those commercials in between the TV shows, whatever I was watching, you know, Greatest American Hero, you know, remember all those shows? Uh, I th what what years were these? Uh, I don't know. This must have been in the, like... In the 80s? 80s, yeah. Yeah, see, in the 80s, I was traveling around the world, so I just missed the 80s. Oh, you just... Missed the 80s. All right, okay. I was going around the world, ha hardly had any money. I was just on trains and buses meeting people. 
So I, I missed miss the decade. Did you miss it or did you? I, I, I basically have no recollection. American culture from the 80s. Miss, yeah. Missed yeah. American culture yeah. in the 80s. And so I would watch these in-between shows and I would, I would be fascinated by these commercials. And I always loved, you know, like the Kool-Aid ads, you know. You're going to have to describe them to me because I missed them. You've never seen a Kool-Aid ad? Well, I've seen Kool-Aid, like, but I'm thinking you know, like 60s or 70s, oh, yeah. this is the 80s. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's like, you know, the kids would say, hey, Kool-Aid, and he'd smash through a wall and he would be like, you know, he'd be like a Kool-Aid jug man, the Kool-Aid man. <laughs> and then like fun. there'd be Kool-Aid spilling out of him and he'd like destroy uh, someone's home and give them Kool-Aid. <laughs> or like, he'd just bust through the wall, you know, and I was like... <laughs> Oh man, I, you know, you it's like a call and response. You scream for Kool-Aid and the Kool-Aid man comes and gives you Kool-Aid. You see that commercial, you got to have Kool-Aid. You got to have Kool-Aid. And I was like, man, someone like someone has to do that job. Like there's a team doing that thing and that sounds awesome. Cuz that's oh, a so that's you, like a 30 second story, right? Right. And you story. want you knew you wanted to make that stories like Yeah, that. so when I was a kid, I like my whole I knew I was going to go into advertising after college. I was lucky because I was just drawn to it. And so that's how you go from Kiss to the Kool-Aid man to this big table. Basically. <laughs> I think there are a few other Yeah, there's steps a couple of steps the in there, but that's basically it. Well, well hold it. You, yeah. You're going to get ready for college. Yeah. Uh, where are you thinking of going to school? What strikes you? My parents wanted me to go in Virginia because it was in-state tuition so i had like the schools in virginia well, you got great from. schools yeah we got the, good schools virginia is a great yeah pretty good so uva you got like william and mary james madison virginia tech those are sort of like the, the main ones so i went to james madison uva i didn't know if my grades were strong enough and they wanted you to write like seven essays to get in you didn't want to write yeah, essay. You want to do Kool Aid ads. Yeah, I don't, want, I don't want to write the essay. You want to bust through the wall. Yeah, well, I'm but, here. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted someone to drop me off at school. So I uh, went to James Madison, which is in Harrisburg. Been uh, there, Virginia. Have you really been there? My uh, middle daughter's boyfriend went there. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And that's how did you end up going there? Then? Well, I just uh, stopped in to yeah. visit them. Oh, you did. Yeah, one right. day, walked around the campus. What did you think? It was it was great college. It's beautiful, town. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I uh, ended up going there, and um, I studied economics because I was trying to. My parents were paying for it. I, I wanted to do art history. Very smart, though. Very what? smart, because they're giving you the other side. They're making you understand. Yeah. What, What's There's behind? Business, yeah. What's behind the big jug? That's true. Yeah, that's true. I never thought of it that way. I that's the first time I thought of it that way. I always think about it as like, you know, like they're paying. I'll do what they want, but it's annoying. <laughs> no, leave me alone. Leave me alone. I wanted to do. I took like a bunch of art history classes. I was so into art history, like just learning about uh, the artists. And um, my parents were like, "You're not. That's not a proper major. Like, you're not doing that." Like you gotta, if you want to go into business, you better get a business degree, and um, that's what happened. Which I guess, in hindsight, I'm glad. But like taking all those stat classes, like what? It I don't, just I don't seemed meaningless at the time. I still, I don't, it's still meaningless no, then, meaningless now. Meaning, no. I don't you get use, the, you can do the big, get the big table without the stats class. You hired other people. Yeah, to you do hire that. people that like love when they were when they were like growing up. And they met their accountant. They were like, oh, this guy's amazing. You know, that's what they were into. Did you understand that at a young age? That what? That, okay, I get what I like. Uh, I'm going to start something and I'm going to recognize other people's passions and I'm going to bring them and I'm going to know what I'm not really good at or I don't really like, but just find the person who loved those numbers the way I loved Kiss. I never th realized that till I, I started my first company. I didn't know that till my thirties. Like I still thought starting a business, you you got you have to do everything. And then when I did everything, and I almost had like a nervous breakdown, that's when I realized the other thing. Like uh, you don't have to. That's what's happening to me. <laughs> you don't have to do everything. Yeah, you, that's a, that's a that's but, you know the worst thing you can do is try to do everything. Okay, I get I get what you're saying. Yeah, I realize it. But I'm, you're not I'm going change. nuts. 
<laughs> no, I am going to change. But, you know, I can remember Donald Trump's son in an interview telling me that. Like his, Which one? Uh, Don Jr. Don Jr., okay. That when he was a kid, most people didn't realize it, but his dad put him in jobs where he had to understand what workers were doing. Because that concept being, if you're going to hire somebody to dig a ditch, you should know what it feels like to dig a ditch. Huh. And you should understand. That process. The process and, and mechanics of the money behind it. Yeah. And so I, I actually thought that was pretty good advice for that me to know advice. everything that's going on. And then once I understand it, okay, now I can find the person who had that right passion yeah. and link them up. So I'm going through the crazy state. You didn't have a nervous breakdown, did you? No, but I shut down my company and then joined friends and started this company. Wow. Because I was doing... What was know, the company? What was we the did, company? Uh, we did production. And so we would do TV shows for brands. And we would sell an idea to a television station. And then the brand would pay for that production. And then the television station would get a free piece of content that they would run ads against. So they would make money without spending any money on production. And the brand would get... You know, it was like branded content. So, wow. like, I did a, I did a, I, examples. I did. This a, was in the eighties, or no, no, this was two uh, thousands, like okay. two thousand, two thousand and one. Like, we did a TV show for Adidas on basketball players that went from high school into the NBA. It was a documentary. Okay, like Kevin Garnett and Kevin Kobe Garnett Bryant. Was in it. Right? Yeah, so yeah, Kevin Garnett okay. was in it, and it was just I, I, so I would have this idea. And then I would call Fox Sports and say, oh, I've got Adidas signed up to do this show. Would you air it? And then I would call Adidas and say, hey, I got Fox Sports <laughs> that will air the show if you pay for it. So that's like, that's how like. That's how you do that's business, how, huh? That's not how you, I do it now. But at the time, I was, it was young and hungry and, you know, trying to do anything. That's not in the book. Like, that's not a, any way to do it. You know, okay. that's like... Uh, well, these are the learning stages. Yeah, these you are the go learning through. stages. And, you know, then, you know, I would hire someone to film the show. I would do the invoicing. I would do the management of the clients. I would, you know, doing, doing that by yourself. After a while, you realize, oh, I can do this by myself is what you think. And then halfway into the project, you're like, I'm going to freaking die, you know? I can't do this by myself. Wow. I don't have expertise in all these areas. Right, right. And then that's I did a few of those types of projects, and then I was like, I need, I need partners. Like I can't do this. It's not sustainable. You can't scale that way. You you need partners with different expertise than you. It this makes sense. So how did you? I, find I mean, your work's a little different. Like you can sort of fly a little more solo. That's the thing. Yeah. I've always flown solo. Yeah. And it's. I have to learn to think this way. Yeah. And I think also there's a difference between television and being a writer. Yeah. Because when you're a writer, you don't really have to rely on a lot of other people to come through for you. Yeah. In a, in a process like making a TV show, you yeah. need a bunch of people. Yeah, sure. It's a collaboration. It is a collaboration. Yeah. All I really needed was an editor to say, yeah, that's a great idea. We'll run it. Right. And, and I was off. So you're used I, to that. I, yeah. I, but I think I got to move a little more in the direction you're talking about. It depends what your goals are. If you want to scale and have the Cal platform be bigger, you're going to need support for sure. But if you are happy at your stage you're at, that's a different story. Then you don't, maybe don't, you don't need anyone. Well, you got to figure out your aspirations, right? Yeah. And I'm going slow. Yeah. Is that wrong? Not necessarily. It depends if you're content or not. I'm pretty happy. Okay. Then you then that's, then I'm, no, I'm, you I'm, should go slow. I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy. Uh, you know, six or eight months ago, I was talking with Tim Ferriss, who has a podcast yeah, yeah. and is responsible for me to 
Yeah, I know Tim well. There you go. Yeah, he's a good friend, yeah. He he nudged me to start this podcast. Oh, and did I, he and, really? Yeah. Oh, it's incredible. In fact, not only did he nudge me, but he continually reached back out and said, Cal, start the podcast, start the podcast. And even just getting these wires in for, and doing the audio check. Yeah. It was, oh, oh, oh. That was like I do, scary. Can I do that? Yeah. Because yeah. I didn't have any of that technological side. And finally, he said to me, look, Cal, you have breakfast with Larry King every day. Go interview him. Set it up like a podcast with podcasting equipment and send it to me. I'll put it up. I want to show you how easy this is. Oh, my God. And so I said, Larry, you would sit down? He said, sure. And we had an engineer come in and we started talking. And I said, oh, Tim, you're right. Oh, my God. So he put it up and it like he, blew up? He's responsible for, yeah. for me being here. Amazing. And then I talked to him and he had another idea for me uh, about helping companies tell their story. And he said, I'll help you put it out there. And I backed off. Same way with the podcast. I was, because I needed to be sure yeah. that this is going to work yeah. before I put myself out there, where usually entrepreneurs, it's just like you're saying, yeah. just what you did, where I'll yeah. call up yeah, Fox, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll call up Adidas, I'll make it happen. Yeah. Now, for me, I have to know I'm going to hit this home run 500 feet, and I know I can do this before I'll call Tim back and say, okay, Tim, I'm ready. So you're risk, risk averse. Um, I take a lot of risks. You do take a lot of risks. And that's partly why I'm like this, because <laughs> okay. if you're always taking big risks, you want to have a backside to that where right. you're protecting yourself, because otherwise I'd just be falling deeply a lot of times. Yep. So this kind of protects me. Yeah. But Tim saw it in me, said, no, this is going to work. And it worked. And I'm, how, and how long has I it been? You know what? I, I, I'm going to reach out to him today after this conversation, and I'm going to say, okay, Tim, I'm ready. Amazing. Yeah. How? Thank uh, you. Yeah, Thank of course. you, by the way. Yeah, no problem. I'm sitting at, and I know this big table is just calling me. Yeah. Cal, if you would just follow Tim's advice, Here's listen to Jason, yeah. buy his book. The big table is coming. The big table's there for you. How long have you been doing this? Uh, I started less, uh, the podcast is about a year and a half. Oh, that's it, yeah. But I only started helping companies tell their stories in, say, the last six or seven months. Okay. And so Tim was going to push that out for me and let everybody know yeah. Cal's doing this. Yeah. Now I've had enough experience where I, I see it works, it works, everybody's happy. Yeah. And so I, I'm ready to go. But you've been telling stories your whole life. And, and that's so why that's Tim looks at me yeah. and says, dude, you got this. Yeah, what are you totally, worried about? Yeah, exactly. You know, part of it is being a writer, you, and maybe you tell me if you went through the same thing with your book. When you're a writer, you get thousands of chances and you can keep rewriting it. Nobody ever sees it. Yeah. It's just happening at four in the morning. Yeah. And so I would wake up and people only read the final drafts after not only I've been through a thousand. But your editors chopped it up. And David yeah. Granger at S, yeah. one of the best editors in the world. Yes. Has yeah. looked at it and, yeah. and maneuvered it around. Right. And, and then gotten back to me and then I've, been able to maneuver it even more. Right. And so when it comes out, oh, wow, Cal, that's fantastic. Yeah. But nobody sees what I've been through. Right. And did anybody see what you were going through when you uh, wrote this book? Uh, just really the, my editor at Random House, uh, Roger Shull, who was reading it chapter by chapter. That was it. It was just, we had a very tight relationship. And I'd never written a book before, so I was... I was scared shitless, you know? Like, can I even do this? I had a proposal. I had a couple sample chapters. But I'm not a, you know, it's not my trade. I'm not a writer. But what I, when you're writing a book like this, where I'm taking 20 years of advertising and marketing experience and saying today in a world of distrust, the way that you persuade 
sell, pitch, convince is different than it was in the past. The Kool-Aid, it's, yeah. it, it, it's run its course. It's run its course. Today, it's all about, I mean, you, this is what you do, right? It's all about character. Authentic storytelling. Authentic storytelling. It's about uh, character. It's about asking big questions. It's about really understand, having empathy and understanding your audience. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all, we're all the same. You know, humans are all the same. We all want the same things. We're all connected. This is sort of my guidebook. So I was writing it. Inherently, that's not hard. I'm not weaving a story. I'm telling my story and putting it into a way, an actionable plan for the audience. But that said, every line still has to be interesting. You have to capture attention. You have to tell a story, even if you're doing a guidebook, right? And so, you know, I would just, it was very challenging. There'd be a lot of late nights. I'd go away for four days and just write and, you know, think about just calling them and saying, I can't do it. You know, like, uh, this isn't for me. I'm not a writer. And then just through the help of the editor, I would just do chapter by chapter, you know, page by page. And he really, he was, he was my Tim Ferriss. He was like, wow. he's like, you have a lot to say. You can do this, you know, change this, move this, get some research in there, put in some psychology, you know. So it really you was, know what? was helpful. There's nothing like a great editor. I know. And then, They're no, like and, shrinks. You know, it, they are like shrinks. And, and quite often nobody ever sees them. Yeah. Unless they, you're in that genre. Yeah. And you're going out to lunch uh, and you know each other. Yeah. Hardly anybody knows a book editor. Yeah. No one knows book editors. No. They're, they're behind the authors. You know, they're trying to make the authors shine. That's their skill, right? Yeah. Their skill is seeing things from a different perspective to fix them for the audience that's going to digest the information. They're really good. That's a skill. I'd be a terrible editor. Yeah, it's, 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 I've, I've, I've done it. Oh, you have? I've done it. And uh, yeah, Did you ever want to transition from writer into editor? Into editor? I only do it, God, it's amazing when I say this, because I'm really, this whole process is getting me to see myself. Uh, when somebody cries help, I go in and help them. I don't see myself as an editor. I see myself as going to help them. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, maybe, maybe uh, I'm finding this out about myself over and over again. I never ever considered it. Yeah. And until I like started this business. Yeah. Uh, but it's very easy for me to see when people need help telling their stories. Yeah. And it's very easy for me to tell the stories. Yeah. So. Is it easy for you? Because what we do at Mechanism is we, we look at a brand. A brand hires us to tell their story and put it out in the world. And we have to figure out underneath all the documents and pages and people that work there, you have to figure out what the core of their, their story is, what the brand stands for. And it has to be more than we make widgets. You know, it has to be more than we make profit for shareholders. You have to figure out what their story really is. Like someone somewhere way, way, way down the line started a company for a reason. For a reason. They yeah, had yeah. to start a company. They saw something that had to be done and you have to peel everything back to figure out what that is. Oh, and it's so man. hard to do. You really? Know? Well, it's hard to do when you've got a chief marketing officer who has two and a half years to prove themselves, you know, like they're, the, the transition. Why, why is this? What? The, I hear like chief marketing officers, they get like two, three years and then they're gone. Because. Or four years or something. Because we live in America, you know. I mean, America is bound by shareholders and shareholders have to see their value always increasing. When you're not playing the long game and you're looking at short term, that's what happens. And if you have a caretaker of your story, the marketing department, and it's constantly changing, it is very hard to have a consistent core truth. Oh my story, goodness. You know? they, yeah, the new person comes up with and they're new like, ideas. Now I'm going to do it this way. Oh no. And this is what we stand no, for. Yeah. No. And you're actually bringing the value of the company down because the value of a brand is, is certainly how much money they make and the revenue they drive, but it's also the equity in the brand, the, what the brand means to people. Does it stand out? 
do people have to be, you know, wear this as a badge or buy that product because it's better? And when it's constantly a revolving door, the story and message is always changing, you know? How complicated does that make for you? Because now you've got somebody maybe new bringing yeah. you in and they obviously know, hey, there's a long table. <laughs> yeah. Back to the, the long table. Yeah. At this this yeah. table, man, it says everything. <laughs> It's, I got to get a picture I feel like before I to, leave. We, we got to get a picture. a table. <laughs> We're going to get a picture before I leave so everybody can All see. Right. You'll be on one end. I'll be on the other end. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that there's a camera that can capture uh, yeah, that. It's a big ass table. <laughs> but okay. So yeah. everybody knows. Yeah. What we're you talking about. You got the big yeah. ass table. Yeah. Right. And they're going to want you to come in and help. Yeah. But w what challenges is that? bring to you going into the company to find the story? So when you're new, when you just get hired by a company, it's really easy because there's been a problem or the last agency they had wasn't delivering it or cracking it. So when you first start, you know, it's like a new relationship, any new relationship when it's, you know, you got like that, those, it's like magical. You know, those butterflies. Oh, like first, if, the first, first uh, girlfriend or boyfriend yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Right. It's like they can do no wrong. So you sort of start there where, and that's really when you need to dive in and figure out how you're going to attack the problem. If And sometimes the answer is not changing their story, but telling the same story, but in new and interesting ways. Sure. Sometimes it's like, you guys don't have a story. We got to figure that out. Sometimes it's like the story you're telling is not working because it's not true. So we have to peel back and oh, figure out what that man. story is. So it's really that start. And then wow. if we're working with a brand and a new CMO comes on board, a lot of times the agency, they'll bring their own agency in so you'll get fired or they'll want to keep you on and you have to convince them what you're doing is, is working. You know, a lot of it now is data and tracking and analytics and numbers, you know, and showing them why it's effective. But it's it's challenging because the best stories are truthful, they're simple, and they're consistent. Like th those really are the three frameworks of delivering great marketing, great storytelling really in general, but authentic, simple, and consistent over time. That's how brands are built. Um, how, when you watch a great movie, Yeah, you read a great book, always there's vulnerability uh, at the heart of a great story. Is this hard for a lot of companies uh, to take on because they don't want to see themselves as vulnerable in any way or uh, it, vulnerability is something they want off the table. Yeah. And yet vulnerability is what makes a story great. It's or true. going through the obstacles and getting to a transformative place. Yeah, that's all stories, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so... Overcoming obstacles, yeah. Is, is this difficult for people and companies to accept that they ha might have to take on this vulnerability? Uh, often it may be the vulnerability of the customer. Like, yeah. you needed that Kool-Aid to smash through the wall <laughs> yeah, for you because you were thirsty, brother. I was, I was thirsty, somebody, man. <laughs> somebody understood Damn, that. Damn, now he's here. Thank God. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, I don't know. You, there was a great Alka-Seltzer yeah. ad. I don't know if you've ever plop, seen this. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Uh, I think this go, may go back before that. Okay. This is like in the 60s, and they had this guy. He's sitting on the side of his bed. He's old guy. He's like bald and and his wife is laying down next to him. And this guy's just had like a, a huge dinner and his belly's out and he's saying, I can't believe I ate the whole thing. <laughs> and his wife oh, is God, saying, amazing. take the Alka-Seltzer. <laughs> and look, I'm still talking about this. Yeah. Like 50 years later. What was the thing he ate, I wonder? You don't know, it doesn't but matter. It, it, yeah, and everybody had their own thing that That's they ate awesome. their own way and ended up on the side of the bed wishing that they hadn't eaten it. And again, vulnerability. Yeah. I mean, 
just a beeline right. into we are all we all know that moment. Yeah. We've all been there. Yeah. I guess the question is how do you make brands be vulnerable? And I think the what really changed in advertising was the the idea when the audience could talk back to the brand and have a dialogue with the brand oh, and tell them what they were screwing like up. Reviews. Reviews, comments on their social when they post a message. You know, everyone pig piling on why it's the why they can't say that message and why it's wrong, which made brands have to be vulnerable to either ignore it, apologize for it, or change it. Oh um, man! You know, like what's happening with SoulCycle now and Equinox. You know that the um, I forget. Well, tell everybody the story. Well, I forget the owner. Um, what his name is. But oh, he had, he invested. Yeah, in he was in the whole Trump Trump camp campaign, campaign, and he was doing fundraisers. And so SoulCycle and Equinox, members. their own. He's he owns um, that has invested you know tons of money in the Trump campaign, and so on you, social, everyone's canceling their memberships and boycotting because they don't you have, have all, the same all women right with yeah. different values right, which is affecting their business and um, the idea in the past that was never a possibility you know because there wouldn't be some outcry on twitter about campaign financing for trump that would lead members to have a conversation about it you know it would maybe be an article in a newspaper that a but few nobody people had access yeah, to act on it to act on it and create these groups and these f online fans to incite and, and get everyone to Cancel oh their God, memberships. It's like the Kiss Army. It's like the Kiss Army. Man, yeah. you're back. Now back, I understand back, why you circle. understand this yeah, so well. Yeah, exactly. And so back to the idea of being vulnerable is when, when that two-way dialogue, that conversation happened, it's forcing brands now to act more like humans. You know, like they have to respond like oh humans. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I'm, now so I'm a brand is it. a human now. Like a brand has to be a person with a voice that responds when uh, the other voice talks to them, which is their consumer or their audience. So brands have to become more humans. They can't just be, in the old world of advertising, you would just pummel your message with as much media weight as you could until the audience understood your message and it got ingrained in their, in their psyche. That, that's it's not done. how it works. That's it's done. Over it's now. over now. You can't, you can't count on repetition and frequency and you know, message just to hit the audience. You have to offer something up. You have to be a human. And that means you need a compelling story to make people lean in because now we're being assaulted by so many messages right. and so many images. I think I, I read that every day we see 10,000 uh, images Image, representing yeah. brands. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah. yeah. So how does your story? Yeah cut through all that and become compelling. So, you know, one way more and more that you have to do it is try to find not just your story, what the brand started from and why it exists in the world, what it's doing in the world, but also add a layer of purpose to your story. You know, what are you doing that's bettering the world or the planet or your audience or your community? So like a brand, a good example I always love is, is Shinola. You know Shinola? In Detroit. Yeah, from Detroit. And so one way to do that is have your story be, yeah, we make incredible watches and jewelry and wallets and whatever. But our story is we're going to be part of the Detroit renaissance. We're going to help build Detroit back up. We're going to open up a plant in Detroit. We're going to hire hundreds and hundreds of workers and everything, every we're going to put Detroit on all of our, made in Detroit on everything, so that Detroit is, has something to be proud of, and that's their story. You know, they're they're giving back to Detroit where they're from. Right, you know, and so the, again, vulnerability is at the heart of that because this place was basically going destroyed. under yeah. after the Great Recession. Right, I mean, it had been building and building and building, but it got to the point where like. You can get a house there for like ten dollars or something. <laughs> yeah, right. It's there's nothing there. The, yeah, yeah. It's like not anymore. Not anymore. And and now, a brand where people can be proud of 
that's a national brand started from Detroit, they're like slapping it on. Like we're, we don't care. We're proud of Detroit. And that that's a compelling story. It's consistent. It's simple. It's a beautiful story. It's, it's a great story. I love, I love that brand. Yeah. For that reason. So yeah, that's so, one example. Yeah. You yeah. would buy those products just because you love the comeback. Yeah. Everyone loves the comeback. Everybody loves the comeback. Yeah. So, you know, another brand that's, that's doing that well is, a brand like Levi's, you know, they have their whole history and story of creating jeans founded in San Francisco where we are today, that pioneering idea of the gold rush, you know, that that sort of go go west young man, like that mentality and and that's what Levi's is born from. And they're adding another story, another layer to the story which is um we know how bad it is for the climate, how much water is used to make our product, right? And so we're going to create, you know, I don't know what the number is, but let's say it's, you know, we're going to use 50% less water to make our products. And so that's another purpose-driven story wow. where they're telling people that I'm they- I'm helping it, save the planet. I'm helping save the planet. By buying those jeans. Yeah, exactly. Great idea. Yeah, yeah exactly. So that's- And that's a very human, Yeah, that comes from a human heart. It comes from a human heart. It means we care about where we live. We're not just jeans. We're Levi's is a living, breathing entity, and we care about where we live and the human race, and we're going to help do something about it with the way we manufacture our products. So there's all those stories now that you have brands have to come up with that isn't just we make jeans or we make watches. They have to add another element to the story, you know, a human element. Yeah, because both of those examples they can compel me. Right. It, 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 it makes me think of next time I need a pair of jeans. You know what? Yeah, you probably buy Levi's anyways. How'd you know? I don't know. You're like a <laughs> Levi's dude, you know? Is that true? Do you buy I don't, Levi's? you know, I, I don't, I hardly wear jeans. Oh, okay. But if I'm going to wear jeans, yeah. they, they'd they probably be Levi's. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Another company that uh, one of our clients is Ben & Jerry's. Love Ben & Jerry's. I met Ben & Jerry's. They're awesome, Had a great they? time with them. Yeah. Yeah. Did you do that? Were they on your... I, I did a, a What I've Learned interview. Oh, What I've Learned, yeah. I yeah. went up to Vermont and hung with them for a little while. And they, they invited me to Burning Man, and I never went. And now it's Burning Man. Uh, have and, you ever been? Uh, no. Me neither. I don't know why. I, and they said, you got to come. Yeah. You got to come. I don't know why, but I've never... Of all my... Of all holidays... Yeah. Halloween is one of my least favorites. Oh, okay. And I imagine this is kind of another version of Halloween with all the art and the, yeah. and the campfires and... The costumes. Yeah, I, yeah. I, and I don't think anyone's going around trick-or-treating. Yeah. Uh, but I've I'm been... I'm definitely more, treating. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more of a Thanksgiving. Okay. And New Year's Eve kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I need to go. I've never been. Maybe we should go together. We should go together with Ben and Jerry. All right. Um, I don't know. I feel <laughs> I feel like that's not, it feels like it's not my scene for some reason. You too. Yeah. Did, did you like Halloween? Why. Yeah, I love Halloween. You love Halloween. I love Halloween. Yeah. But Halloween is, you know, one night and then, then you go home. You know, you're not there for a week in the desert, you know, whatever, doing drugs and tripping off, your balls off and... I don't know. It seems like... You know, it's a very interesting question. I feel like we should overcome our, our fear and go. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's set it up for All next right. year. I feel like you would get a lot of stories there, too. I'm in. Yeah. That, you, that was, see, that was, that's why you got the big table. You knew just what to say to persuade me. I did? What did I say? You said, Let, I feel like there's going to be a lot of stories oh, there. Yeah. And you know... That's right. That's that that the, really that's speaks to you. That's the key yeah. that's gonna open me up. Yeah, that's right. If you got a great story, yeah, like my my chin is out. I'm yeah. leaning in. Yeah, yeah. You can just hit me with that right hand. <laughs> Boom! Boom! All right, you're in. You know, there's stories there. Right? You you you'd probably should record something. Um, but yeah, back to Ben and Jerry's and Burning Man. Ben and Jerry's is a brand that has always been about purpose. You're buying ice cream. You're not exactly sure. Like, I know this one might be for fair trade or climate change, 
or LGBTQ rights. You know, you're not sure, but you know when you're buying their ice cream, you're buying something more than ice cream. Right. And they've done it. Like, did you did you know that about Ben and Oh, Jerry's? Yeah, a, a yeah, a million yeah, percent. Yeah. And so that they've done an amazing persuasive job of ice cream is, they're a bunch of progressive liberals trying to do good for the world. They just happen to make ice cream. You know, ice cream is like part of it, but it's not all of it. You know, it's like... This ice cream can help save the planet. And ice cream makes everybody happy. Yeah. So now you're happy. Yeah. Helping people. Helping people. Again, yeah. comes back to help. Yeah, exactly. So that's there like a go. very oh, early. Man, I'm really, brand. you know what? You're really opening. This is like a big day. This. Oh, good. This is a big day for me oh, at really? the big table. At the big table. The because table again. everything you're Just, talking about yeah. is about help. Yeah. Help save the planet. Yeah. Help Detroit get back on its feet. Help do something in the world that's going to make you smile the way you smile when you eat ice cream. Yeah. And I'm, I'll just veer this off for a second, for but it. it'll, it'll get back to the point. I was doing a little show with Larry King, and the woman who was next to us, Danielle Robey, asked us a question. She said, why do you do what you do? Larry immediately said to communicate. And that, that's what he does. He communicates in a way that's so straightforward and gets into people's souls and transmits a message so that it can be understand on a mass level. That's who he is. And it came to me. Yeah. And I said, to help people. And Larry looked over at me like, what? I never knew that about you. I thought you were like me. I thought you were a communicator. Right. And I'm realizing now that everything I do is to help somebody. That's awesome. And now you're telling me that basically these companies have to be thinking this way. Yeah. Which is why I am intuiting I'm going in the right direction. Why Tim Ferriss told me, Cal, just go out there and do this because he can see it. But only now did I just make that connection. Well, you knew it because that's what you said way back when. That's what you do, is help. That's what I most want to do with my time. Yeah, well, you're doing it. Yeah, and so I didn't. And the best way you can help is to create the biggest platform you can to get those messages out there. Well, that's why I'm at the big table. Oh, God, the big table. <laughs> Jesus. This but should just Jason, be called... Uh, this, no, this, this show is going to be renamed The Big Table, the big table <laughs> yeah. with Jason Harris. Jason and Cal. <laughs> going to Burning Man. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you... How does this scale? How, yeah. Like, when you started, you didn't have this big table. Yeah. Uh, you, you almost had a nervous breakdown. Yeah, so yeah. how do you go from almost having a nervous breakdown to getting the big table. Well, so in, this is different than in, in your business. And in like Tim Ferriss, he doesn't need partners. He's, he's writing best-selling books and cranking them out. In our business, we're working, the only way to scale and get more clients and brands, and in most people's business businesses out there, it's all about collaboration. So you have to, you have to find the right partners with different complementary skill sets in order to scale and build. And then you have to hire, you know, what we talked about at the beginning, you have to hire people that love numbers, that love making things, that love managing clients and relationships. You have to find people with different passions, then then assemble them, Avengers like assemble create, and put them together. Creating a cast of a movie. You gotta create a cast and that cast has to be inspired. They have to be rallying around the same thing and they all have to get along. You know, that's really, really important is I've always believed in um, working and hiring some of my best friends that I've ever had work here. You know, I've hired them here. And I think that's really important. Well, you know, they say don't work with your friends. I was just wondering how you pulled that off. I believe that you should always work with your friends and you should f create companies that when you walk in, you feel like you're walking in to a place of friendship. Like you feel like you're walking in and working every day with your friends because if you're going to spend time doing something and working that many hours, it should be around people that you love and like, I think. 
that makes perfect sense. And it doesn't always work because, like, I hired one of my best friends here, and it's hard for us not to talk about fr freaking work. You know what I mean? It's hard for us not to talk about clients and problems and issues and people. Um, so how did that go wrong? We have to make an effort. We're going out. We're actually going out. Oh, to, so you can't. You've lost your friendship because it's become work. It's become work, but you're working with your friend, which is good. But we're going out to dinner tonight, and I, and we have to say we're going to talk about everything but but work. You know, you have to make that sort of distinction. Wow, that's yeah. a, okay. But I believe Man, it, you're taking me to the next level here. I wasn't even is, thinking of this. You should stuff. always work with your friends. Always work with your friends because you're going to spend a lot of hours working, and wouldn't it be more fun? I mean, unless they're like terrible or can't perform, then you have other issues with because then you have to fire your friends or your friends have to quit. Have you ever had to fire a friend? Um, no, I don't think I have. No, I haven't. Oh, that's good news. Yeah. You were thinking there pretty deep. Well, for, there was somebody on the there was borderline. Somebody, yeah, there was someone on like. <laughs> well, you know what? He wasn't that much of a friend. Well, I, we weren't friends before we worked together. But then we became friends, so it's it's not exactly black and white. But I just hired my last roommate when I lived in San Francisco. I live in New York now, but when I lived in San Francisco, a guy that I lived with, we just hired him here. He's one of my best friends in the world, and so I hope it works. I have a feeling it will. I think it might, yeah. He's talented. I, you know what? There's something. I, I, I'm just getting the energy coming off you, and you you just seem to know like where things are going. Hmm. Did, and yet, when we started the conversation, you pointed out that you're really good at knowing what's going to happen in the next hour. You're not thinking too far. I'm not a great planner. Not a great planner. So yeah. it, is that a case where you find a friend who is a great planner? No, I don't know how I'd pull that off. I let a lot of people, well, now our company's scaled and big enough that- How many people? We have about 200 people. 200 people. So I people now have people that like plan my schedule for me. Okay. And they kind of tell me <laughs> where I'm going and what I'm supposed to focus on. And, uh, and do and so, you specifically hire those people or have you entrusted other people to hire those people? I guess a bit of both. A lot of people have convinced me that I have to hire those type of people in order for the company to be more uh, successful. Scale. Scale. So scale, scale, I listen to those right. people and then they're always right, you know? They're usually always right. How like I never had I never had an office before. And then oh, you've uh, never had an well, office. Well now I have an office. Right. Like my own office. Oh okay. Hey look, this big table is yeah. good enough, probably. No, right. So I would like <laughs> I would like sit in conference rooms and have conversations and take over conference rooms and people couldn't meet until, you know, my team was like, you, you need yeah. your own office. Like and what was their feeling? Was it just about get the, the get the fuck out of our conference room? <laughs> you know, basically, <laughs> like we can't be productive if you're gonna hog all of our space. <laughs> I thought like somebody was trying to protect your reputation oh, or something. No, no. Like you need oh, a big no. office with photos. No, they don't care about that. They don't care. No, they don't care about my reputation. Just get, just like, get out of our space. Get out of our space alone. and be more productive in your own office. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It all was right. her idea actually. Well, well done. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. So anyway, what else? Right. Okay. Well, is there any advice that you would pass on to me uh, or anybody else who is in need of help in the art of persuasion that would persuade them to buy this book? Because you don't <laughs> want to give away too much because now, I'm, let yeah. me see how many pages we got here. We got 291 pages. Yeah. What is the most important thing that, that I should know coming out of this book without giving away the secret so that people will want to buy it? Because now there's one in front of me. So I'm, you know what? I'm going to read it. I'm going to buy 10 of these. Really? That's right. But what if you don't like it? I already know I like oh, okay. it. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 Thank you. Not only do, do I know I'm going to like it, but when you explain that this is 20 years of your experiences yeah. to get to this point, and I see where you were with the Kool-Aid, 
I see where you are now at the big table. I know this is what I need. Yeah. I would say, uh, well, there's, I kind of broke, I broke it into 11 habits based on, and habits are, th any, anyone can learn these habits. So I don't know that there's one that's more important than the other, but if you're going to push me for like one. A starter habit. A starter habit would be this idea of when, you look, when you're thinking about business, and, and this book really is for business and personal growth because I think they're connected. How you are, how you conduct yourself and your character comes through in everything, your personal life. Yeah, the art of you know, persuasion. Yeah. I imagine that somebody uh, who's dating yeah. can pick this book up, look through it, yeah. and use some of the habits you're talking about totally. to be persuasive. Yeah. I would say this idea of looking at persuasion, looking at it as never be closing versus always be closing is, is sort of one thing that always comes through for me, which is in business, don't look at it as transaction to transaction to transaction, like just selling or closing or getting a deal done or getting that promotion or getting that raise. Look at it as playing the long game and your whole career and success is based on relationships and it's based on connection and that takes time you know it's it takes time to develop those but you should always be thinking about it in those terms the short-term thinking is i think what gets brands in trouble it gets people in trouble and it hampers success because eventually if you're always looking at this idea of the long game and I'm in it for the long haul and I'm building relationships and I don't know where they're gonna end up. I don't know where these relationships are gonna take me, but I'm gonna build these relationships over time. It always, you always end up successful. That's sort of a key, I think. Well, that's good news because I've been doing that instinctively without even knowing that. I, I already have habit number one. There you go. Well, you have it, but I bet a lot, a lot of people, the conventional wisdom is, is ABC, always be closing, like get the oh, deal, get oh, the deal. Oh, you know, Heather Monahan is always, she was telling me that you got to learn, always close the deal. Yeah. Pull out the, I don't even have a contract to pull out. Right. You know, she, she was telling me, like, when you go into a hotel, you have to ask for an upgraded room. Like, I would never think of doing that. Right. But in her mind, it's close the deal. Close the deal, And if yeah. they say no, what did you lose? Yeah. Well, I mean, that has its place, too. Then that's valid. And, and at some point, you need a spot. You know, you're going to get a deal for a sponsorship of the podcast, and you got to get them to sign. We got. I got to get a client to hire us. But it's, it's the, that mentality of maybe a deal doesn't happen you still keep that relationship and something could happen down the road. It doesn't mean because this didn't happen, that relationship's forfeited or over. You know, my sponsorship came out of a friendship. There you go. That's, I, you that's know like I a think perfect I example. May, I may like be turning the pages of this book yeah. and just saying, yep, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. yep, yep, yep. It sounds like you're a soulful persuader already. This yeah. Well, there's still something I in got, there you can learn. I'm, I, sure. I'm yeah. sure you got 291 pages here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and I, I can't wait to get into it. All right, awesome. I'm so grateful that you wrote it. I'm so grateful that we connected over the big table. We're going to get a photo taken. I will always remember this table because to me, it's a symbol of what is possible. I'm just thinking of you watching those Kool-Aid ads as yeah, a kid. Yeah, that was me. And now it, it may be that somebody in your office is saying, you know what? I should be at that big table. Oh, uh, yeah. I bet a lot of people are thinking that. <laughs> yeah. Get Jason back uh, yeah. in his office. Yeah. I'm glad you brought me into the big table. Well, I'm glad you came, and uh, it's been a wonderful conversation. It, it has been. Yeah. I, I'm very grateful. Likewise. And I hope it's the first of many and that we do go to Burning Man next year. Let's do it. And now I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be, it's going to be me and Cal in a loincloth. Oh, no. Yeah, it's going to happen. <laughs> We're going to both have your, we're going to have your reporter hat on. I'm, you know what? 
It's, it's happening. Let's, let's just come back to the big table with a nice bottle of port. All right. That sounds good, too. <laughs> That's kind of where, right. you know what, you know what, no, I got to step out of my comfort zone. I, I agree, man. You got to be fearless. All right. Get the loincloth ready. We're doing it. I, I'm going to start cutting it tonight. <laughs> Cheers, brother. All right. Thanks, man. That about wraps it up. I want to thank Tim Ferriss for giving me my own big table. It comes in a little box that contains my podcast recorder. This recorder and a couple of mics have enabled my voice to go around the world and bring thousands and thousands of people to my table. And it never would have happened if it wasn't for you, Tim. Thanks, buddy. Also want to thank my sponsor, Spoutique, for allowing me to roam the world in comfort. I'm telling you, it's just a different experience when you put on a Sportique Comfy Tea. Check out Sportique.com, S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com, and see what I mean. You know, life is often not comfortable. In fact, if we want to grow, we need to constantly step out of our comfort zones. You know what? That's the best time to be wearing your Sportiques. No argument, no debate. Just put on those threads and see what I mean. Cheers.